You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Let's turn our attention now to uh, the Shorter Catechism as we're continuing to work through it. We're on question number 22 today. Would anybody like to uh, borrow a copy of the Shorter Catechism for the day or take one you can have? Um, anybody need one? Let's see, okay, don't be shy. Don't be shy. I, I won't throw it. You've got coffee in your hand. It's okay if you want a copy. Anybody? Okay. Ah, there we go. There we go. Take two. Um, and if you don't have them and we'll make use of them, you're welcome to take them home um, and bring them back, or you can just dump them back in this um, bucket when you're finished after today. Okay, so question number 22. We're coming to the last time we looked at, um, technically, I don't think Pastor Wright used this term. It's probably smart of him. The hypostatic union, the theological term y'all talked about last week. And this is the two natures and one person of Jesus Christ. The one person, two natures. And so you talked about that and some of the implications. Today, we're talking about what we call the incarnation, uh, particularly the act of the incarnation, what it means for the eternal son of God to take upon himself human nature. What was that? Uh, What happened? What was the mechanism God used to do that? And we'll see some of the implications and why that's important. But a couple resources. I'm trying not to do this as much this time through the Shorter Catechism, but I can't help myself. Um, I want to mention a couple resources that are just really wonderful in thinking about these things deeply and really helping it uh, plant a seed to grow into to praise of God for this incredible reality. Um, this first book is called The Person of Christ by Donald McLeod. He's a Scottish theologian, contemporary. Uh, I believe he's still alive. Um, And this is the best contemporary book dealing with uh, the doctrine of who is Jesus, not what Jesus did, but who is he, the person of Jesus. It's phenomenal. There's a great chapter on the incarnation, uh, the chapter on the incarnation and the one on Chalcedon's language of perfect in Godhead, perfect in manhood. Those two chapters really hit on what we're talking about today. And I highly, highly recommend it if you uh, want to dive into some theology more deeply. Uh, That's a great place to go. Um, Second is a book by J. Gresham Machen, The Virgin Birth of Christ. And I'll pause here to to highlight something else. The Argyle Inn Forum is part of the men's ministry, and we're about to start a book by Machen on Christianity and liberalism. And talking about liberal Christianity, Christians that deny things like the virgin birth, that deny the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, and so he was addressing that 100 years ago, and we're, it's, a, it's really a, a wonderful resource for us today. That will start the first Wednesday of September. Men, come to my house, 8 o'clock. Um, there's more details on the website. We'll be reading another book by Machen. But Machen considered this book, The Virgin Birth of Christ, his magnum opus. It is massive on the virgin birth. What does that mean? Why it's important? Why it's biblical? This is the book to talk about the virgin birth. It's, again, about 100 years old at this point. Not quite but it is an incredible work. And especially if you just pick it up, you can go online and get it for free. If you just read the conclusion, it's wonderful. 
and very accessible. And then finally, if you want to dive back into church history a little bit more, um, this Athanasius of Alexandria from three, about 330s uh, AD, um, he wrote this wonderful book on the incarnation. And book is overselling it a little bit. It's more of a pamphlet. It's 40, 50, 60 pages. And if you've never read anything from the early church, go Google it and find it. And you can read it online for free. It is so warm. It is so clear. It is so doxological. If you think about, okay, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Boom, we can move on. He's pausing and saying, okay, how does this lead us to praise God? And it's so amazing. Yeah, it's written 1,700 years ago. And so we have to overcome a little bit of you know, difficulty in that. But it is so accessible. Highly, highly recommended um, by St. Athanasius. Okay, there are my resources. Let's go to question 22 of our shorter catechism. Question 22. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? And okay, I'm not going to read the answer yet. Put this in context, we looked at sin for a while, and the question was, did God leave us to perish in sin? And the answer is a resounding no. How did he do that? He gave us a redeemer, and the redeemer is God and man, one person in two natures, forever. And so the question now is, uh, this redeemer, how did he become God and man? How did that happen? So how did the Christ, or how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? And here's the answer, question 22. Christ the Son of God became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. All right, so here we have this articulation of the incarnation of God taking on human flesh. Um, let me just look at a couple passages of scripture here to get on our mind some of the biblical teaching. And we've all heard, if you've been around the church, um, if you've been at Redeemer more than two weeks, you've heard this uh, confess. We will confess it this morning, that Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. This is confessed by Christians going back until as the New Testament was written. Um, it has been critical and essential to our Christian faith. And I'm going to read a couple of scriptures that get at this idea and help us see some of the significance. Hebrews 2, therefore he, Jesus Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be made like us in every respect. Uh, one of the church fathers says, the unassumed is the unhealed. So if Christ didn't assume to himself human flesh, he did not heal human flesh. He cannot save human flesh. So he assumed our nature to redeem us. And this comes straight from passages like Hebrews 2. Second, first, uh, second, first John, no. First John, our second passage, first John 3, 5 you know that he, Christ, appeared in order to take away sin. And in him, there is no sin. So he assumed human nature, but yet there's no sin in him. How can this be? And we'll discuss that. And then finally, this is part of the narrative from Luke of Christ's birth. And I'll read this for us. But notice how many times it says the word virgin and clearly states the doctrine of the virgin birth here. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. 
And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign on the, over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born. No, to be born will be called holy, the son of God. So we see that reality of her virginity. And we also see the Holy Spirit's operation overshadowing to bring the second person of the Trinity into union with human nature. So there's a couple key concepts that we're going to work through in our uh, catechism today. And as always, feel free to, to pipe up, raise your hand as we go through this. But let's first look at this. Um, incarnation is the, the overarching uh, first idea here. And this comes from Latin in to come into uh, carnalis or a number of different words that mean flesh. So come into flesh. And in Latin, it actually took on its own term, incarnate, um, to become enfleshed. And this is, comes straight to English from that, becoming flesh becoming enfleshed. Um, this is the son of God becoming man. You think of first John or John one chapter or first. I can't get my number straight. John one 14 and the word, the eternal son of God. That's what he's calling the word in the first chapter of John. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's the language here that the catechism uses. God became man. The son of God became Man. Now, not become in the sense of changing nature. It's not like God changed himself into man. The divine was, was no longer or set aside or something like that. But in the sense of assuming flesh, this becoming can, can mean like a, 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 what's the language? To come into being. So the, the divinity is now coming into being with humanity. It's assuming a human flesh. And, and the question is, how did this happen? That's really the question uh, that's being asked. How did this happen? How did God assume human flesh? Well, let's see what we say. By taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. Great, we can move on. That's easy. <laughs> this language of true body, reasonable soul comes from the Chalcedonian Creed of 451. And it is language that's been used by the church for a long time. So as the divines are using this language, true body, reasonable soul, they are intentionally putting themselves in line with the, the, the church history, with the development of theology. They're saying, we're not de deviating from what the church has always confessed about this. Jesus had a true human body and a reasonable soul. And it's interesting here we see taking to himself is the language. So we're seeing the second person of the Trinity is actually doing the work here. But we also see in, uh, in Luke, it's the Holy Spirit who's doing this. And of course we see it's the father who sent the son. So we see this Trinitarian action here of this incarnation. It's not just one person of the Trinity doing something. This is the entire Trinity acting to bring the second person of the Trinity in union with our nature. So what does true body mean? He took to himself a true body. It just means real, actual, true human flesh. Um, this is 
against a heresy called docetism that said he only appeared human. He only looked like he was human. He wasn't really a human. In, in the Old Testament, right, uh, the angel of the Lord, someone say Christ, would appear as a human at times, right? Uh, I think of the angels showing up to Abraham, um, other places as well, where there's an appearance of humanity. God is appearing as, hum, uh, as, as a human for a purpose at a single point in time. At that point, he didn't take on himself human flesh, being united to it. It was an appearance as humanity. So some people would say in the New Testament, Jesus just appeared human. He wasn't really human. He just looked like it. God taking on this human lookalike form. But no, what we say is it was true humanity. It was a real human nature that he took. And so it's a true physical body. Um, and, and we'll see it's without sin, we'll come to, but it's a true body in that it had needs. It had to eat. Uh, there were bod- bodily digestive functions. Um, all of these things, he needed to sleep. All of this is true of Christ. He, it was a true body. And there's actually interesting debates over could Jesus, with this sinless body, um, could Jesus get sick? Uh, was he able to get sick? Um, because if it was uh, humanity as it was in the garden, could humanity in the garden get sick? Uh, this, this holy, uh, unstained by sin, human nature, could it get sick or not? So there's debates by theologians and some say yes, some say no. Interesting debate. But the point is it was true humanity. And that's what we're trying to, um, to get at here. This isn't a fake humanity, an appearance is humanity. It's a true, real human body, just like ours. But it doesn't just stop at the body. There's this language of a reasonable soul. And again, this is old, old language. The anima rationalis, a human psychology and immaterial being, a soul, a human soul, immaterial being. It's reasonable. It's rational. He's able to think and feel. It's, there's an immaterial part of our beings that we can't understand, but it's a part of our beings. And Jesus had that as well. And this is against another heresy called Apollinarianism, a guy named uh, Apollinarius, of course. Um, (laughs) He said that the incarnate son did not have a human mind. He had a human body, but he didn't have a human mind. He had a divine mind, but no human mind. And so what he would say is that uh, Jesus in flesh was um, completely omniscient and knew everything at one time. And this divine mind got rid of the humanity, human mind. But no, in the course of church history, we've always said Jesus has a human mind, a rational soul, a reasonable soul. So this mind. um, And so we see Jesus at times having a limitation upon his mind. So for instance, uh, one one of my professors would say, would Jesus know... Would Jesus be able to to write on a chalkboard, if that exists, the periodic table of elements? We say, well, he's divine, he's omniscient. Of course he can, right? Well, no, because this is, he has a human mind and the periodic table of elements was not something that was invented at that point. They didn't understand that. Now, of course, God knows this, but in the mind of the, the man walking around on this earth, there were limitations. Jesus even said, the son doesn't even know the hour. And he's not speaking of the eternal son of God. He's speaking in his economy as the divine appointed son who would now, or not, not divine son, but the, the mediator son who is now going to the cross for his people, redeeming his people. And so he said, the son, the incarnate son does not know the hour of his own return. Only the father knows. 
That's what he says. So we see even Jesus expressing a limitation of what he knows in his human nature, according to his human nature. Again, we're not limiting God and his full omniscience and and mind and will and decree, but we're saying in the human nature that God assumed that human nature wasn't omniscient. But Jesus knew through experience, he grew in, um, in stature, in favor with God and man. He grew in wisdom and stature, it says. So he grew in wisdom. He grew in, in learning and experience, but he also had revelation from second person of the Trinity, first person of the Trinity, third person of the Trinity. There was revelation that Jesus Christ has, had and has, in a way that does um, go above our mind in a way. Um, but it's not that he was omniscient. He was given knowledge that, yes, the Pharisees had this in their heart, that so-and-so thought these sort of things. So he had this special revelation, but it wasn't that he had this unlimited um, knowledge at all times and all places. Um, did I see hand back here? That's right. That's right. Exactly. So I would, I would say that's, that's an instance of, of supernatural revelation being given to him. And we can say, well, okay, it's the eternal son of God, the second person, the Trinity illuminating him. Well, yes, that's true, but also the father and the spirit are involved as well. So it's divine revelation that's allowing him to know these things. Uh, it's not that we have the, the omniscient mind of Jesus kind of seeping through and getting rid of his human mind. That's not what's happening. We got to be careful about that. But yet he does know these things and there's revelation given to him. Yeah, uh, reason, it says, yeah, reasonable soul is the language. Soul is, is, is speaking here of immaterial, our immaterial self. And so reasonable saying has the ability to reason is what it means. So it has uh, the mind, the affections, um, all the immaterial parts of our existence, Jesus had that as well. And in fact, we, um, I was gonna get this, get to this in a minute, but human emotions is a, a critical part of of the incarnation. Jesus had true human emotions. Uh, we see him in Gethsemane, right? Um, well, if there's any way, will you take this cup from me? There, there's great um, uh, grief, looking, knowing what's coming, but yet at the same time had joy for the joy set before him endured the cross. So there's joy. Um, I also think when, when Lazarus uh, died, what did he do? Jesus wept, Right? So there's great emotion. So he had human emotions, experienced the grief and the joys and the suffering of life with emotion. Um, B.B. Warfield said, it belonged to the truth of our Lord's humanity that he was subject to all sinless human emotions. So that's important. Sinless, right? He was never overcome with rage. Uh, he never had these any sinful emotions, but he had every pure emotion. Calvin says, Christ has put on our feelings along with our flesh. We don't have a stoic Jesus. We have a Jesus who loves, who feels, who, who had great pity on the crowds. His insides were moved is how the Greek reads. He had pity on these people because they were sheep without a shepherd. He loved them. What was the nature of Christ during the gestation period? We'll get, let's, we'll get there in one second. We'll get there. I have a thesis for you on all that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, 
And then the other part of this reasonable soul, so human mind, human emotions, and a human will. So Jesus was actively making decisions as he was walking through this life. It's not like he was on autopilot. It's not like he was on, uh, uh, you know, there's this divine mind that was implanted in his head that was just, uh, you know, giving him no choice in the matter, right? There were real human choices Jesus was making through life. And so there's, there's a real humanity making real choices. So I'll just mention that. So let's, let's come to, um, well, okay, I'll pause there for a moment. I'm sure there's lots and lots to get into, and I may stop us, but let's see what you got. Uh, so the, we would say the eternal son was on mission. That's right. That's right. Jesus, as he is incarnated, is Um, so, so we're talking about the person. So we have to talk about the person and the natures. Um, persons, so one of the theological maxims is persons don't act, natures do. Um, but natures are only uh, true natures insofar as they're a person. So if we say, let's try this. So yes, we're getting, we're getting deep water. The eternal son of God, as God, has never put off omniscience. So the second person of the Trinity always has omniscience, always, forever. Um, there's never a point in time when the second person of the Trinity, God, God's own essence cannot put aside his divinity. He does not put aside divinity. When he came and took on human nature, it's not like God was just saying, I'm surrendering divine prerogatives. I'm no longer God. Uh, nothing of that sort. So what we have to understand is the, uh, the eternal son of God always is omniscient. But as he's now joined himself to a human nature in this person of the eternal son of God, there's now a human nature. The human mind of this person is not omniscient. So would you say the, the mind belongs to the nature? That's right. That's right. There are two minds. That's exactly right. Two minds and two wills. And Pastor Wright touched on this last week, right? There's two minds that were in unison with one another, but it's not as if that means the human mind was omniscient, the same way the divine mind is omniscient. And the human will was making true choices and decisions and was in concert with the divine will, but it wasn't the divine will at the same time. It was making real choices also. Um, we're, We're hitting upon infinite mystery, Right. And, and so if I'm saying, you know, if, if I'm, I, I, I'm scared to say something heretical. Right. So I'm very, very terrified right now. Um, and I don't want to be burned at the stake after the service. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's exactly right. And so all of this fits under the humiliation of Christ. Um, and so Christ humbled himself. The eternal son of God humbled himself. And the first step of that humiliation was taking upon himself human nature. And that is an act of supreme humility to bind himself to our nature, our frail, our finite, I'm not gonna say he bound himself to fallen human nature, but our frail, finite human nature. He bound himself to that. And that is an act of great humiliation, but it's not either as if the divine nature is, and, and, and um, 
this goes way back to, to the early church as well. It's not as though the human nature circumscribed the divine nature or, or held the divine nature within this one location where this, the human nature is. Because at the same time, Jesus was eating bread and teaching the masses. So was the eternal son of God upholding the universe by the word of his power. So the eternal son of God was upholding all things at the same time. He was joined to this human nature who was there teaching the masses or sleeping, taking a nap, fishing on the boat, working in his father's carpentry shop, whatever it was, hanging on the cross. That's right. Eternal son of God upholding the universe was at the same time joined to nature, the human nature that was dying upon the cross. What is, I mean, okay. I'm not sure there's much further I can go. Um, Let's see what you have to say, John. Right, right. We wrestle with it and we find some structure that upholds both. And we say, this is our best understanding. And this is consistent with both the scripture saying and the talking to this. And so I'm going to lift my eyes up and say, I don't understand. Right, that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. And, um, you know, I think the church has done an extremely good job of wrestling with these topics. Like you're asking incredibly good questions, but we're not the first ones to ever ask these questions. And so there's great depth that the church has done in wrestling with these things. And by no means am I an expert. Um, but you're right. At some point, like this is a mystery. Like this is not something we can sit and clearly define perfectly from every angle. This is at some point, this is, we say, I believe who's incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. I believe that because God teaches it and I, I'm trying to understand it in some way that I can, but this is what God has revealed and thus we believe it. Okay, Colin. Yeah. So that we talked about when Christ spoke, sometimes he was speaking as man and sometimes he was speaking as divine, that nature. And now when he has two minds, mm-hmm. sometimes he is activating one nature or the other one. Does he make that decision? Or does God kind of help him to, to pick up divine nature at times? Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't say it that way. What I would say is that as he's speaking with divine authority, this is the second person of the Trinity revealing to him things to say as a human. Like he's not ever setting aside his human nature and now speaking as this, as, as a disembodied God. He's always speaking from the human nature for us to hear. And there are times in which we see the 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 revelations that are given to him about the, div- the divine. Um, so I wouldn't say he's, he's setting aside the human nature to speak from the divine nature only. But, I mean, I see why, why we would maybe say it that way, but mechanically that's not what's happening. But we're, and we're getting there a glimpse of, this, of the revelation that he's been given as the person of the, the, the second person of the Trinity um, that, that he could teach and we would know. All right, so let's go to the virgin birth with our seven minutes left or no we got seven plus five what's that 13 minutes okay 13 minutes here we go the virgin birth and that was only like on my notes like half a page and now we've got way more notes here we'll see how we how we get how far we get um so this this how how did he become incarnate so he took upon himself um a true body reasonable soul how did this happen in the language here being conceived by the power of the holy ghost in the womb of the virgin mary and born of her 
So he was conceived not through ordinary sexual relations. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Supernatural conception. So some people would say, oh, it's better to say the virgin conception. You know, there's different language people use. Um, But yes, he he was born of a virgin. Um, There's a supernatural conception by the Holy Spirit using the substance of the Virgin Mary to create the human nature. And it's not as if there was already a person in, uh, a human person in uh, Mary's uh, womb that then was uh, overcome by the divine nature. No, there, there was a, uh, the divine, the, the, the eternal person. There was a human nature created for that person. And pastor Wright got into this last week. I'm sure you're all experts on all that. So I don't want to go into that too much, but I do want to highlight this point that Mary was a virgin and we, we, we pass over this uh, far too quickly. And we don't sit and understand the gravity and frankly, how weird it is to believe this, right? That a woman who had never had sexual relations gave birth to a child. And we, we read this in Luke 1. Luke 1 clearly, without a doubt, says this. Matthew 1 says this as well. Uh, it's just one verse here. Now, the birth of Jesus took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from, not the father, the human father, you would expect from the Holy Spirit. So before Mary and Joseph came together, uh, and that's a euphemism, uh, it can speak of marriage, but it's also euphemism for sexual relations. We see that in other places in scripture, first Corinthians seven, for example, um, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So Mary did not conceive Jesus through ordinary sexual relations. And so this is a work of the Holy Spirit. And this, at this point, how do we understand this moment in time? How do we understand this moment when the eternal son of God wedded himself to a human nature in this womb? When the Holy Spirit did this work of now making a human nature that was a single cell, now to grow into a full man, how, how did that single cell, how was it wedded to divinity? What happened? How Incredible is that moment in time where for eternity, this human nature will always be identified with the eternal son of God, the person of the eternal son of God. I'm not, because I don't know, (laughs) right? And there's some, and I tried so hard to find it, but there are some incredible hymns of the early church talking about this moment in time and how the universe is totally different now that this has happened. Like the clock reset on humanity and literally like we reset the time zero AD, right? When Christ has come, things are now different. When God takes on human flesh, the world is a different place than it was before. We had promises before we, they looked for it before, but now it's happened. God is with us. God dwells with his people. And what a glorious thing that is. I don't know anymore else than what I just said. We can't peer far much more deeply into this than, than, than that. But what a glorious truth that, as the Nicene Creed says, for us men and for our salvation, men speaking humanity, right? Not just men gendered humanity for us men, humankind, and for our salvation, he became man. What an incredible moment in history when that happened. And maybe one day in glory, we can go back and ask questions. We can see what happened. I don't know. I want to talk about Mary for just a moment um, because we do see in Luke 1, Mary is called blessed among women. 
right? She is called blessed among women. She has been shown grace and favor by God. There's something extraordinary, that, a, a favor that God shows Mary. That, that is really amazing. Like God is in her womb, we can say. No, her womb did not encompass all of God, no. But God wedded himself to the nature in her womb. That's an incredible thing. What an amazing blessing that is. And so I think we would do well to meditate on that and to think about that. But we don't do that very much because we see the dangers of the Roman Catholic Church teaching on this, right? Where Mariology is just as important as your Christology. The Mary as the co-mediator, mediatrix, uh, the co-redeemer, the sinless one. Um, They use this incredibly sweeping language to describe her and exalt her almost divinity. Uh, it's interesting. The uh, Muslims will often talk about Christ- Christians and they say this Trinity thing is crazy. It's crazy. Um, because, and, and this is, goes back to like Joseph Smith from six, seven hundreds um, AD. Um, not Joseph Smith. Sorry. <laughs> wow. Muhammad. Muhammad. Um, Joseph Smith, Mormons, Muhammad. Islam. Okay. So it goes back to Muhammad. (laughs) And uh, he would say, no, the Christian idea of three gods is crazy. It's not the father, the son, and Mary. That's crazy. The Bible doesn't teach that. Well, he's right. But what had happened at that point in time was that the, the church was emphasizing Mary so much where it looks like the Holy Trinity was the father, the son, and Mary. And the father and Mary got together and made a child, the son. And so even to this day, Muslims think, and it's in the Quran, speaking of the father, the son, and Mary as the Trinity, or as three gods, they might call it even. Um, and that's not right, but we see why they might, might have thought that 600 AD, uh, because there was such this high exalted view of Mary, almost to the point where she was divine. Um, there's a Roman Catholic doctrine of the immaculate conception, immaculate conception. And we might use this term at times. Um, it, it is immaculate, the conception of Christ, immaculate, amazing thing. But actually the Roman Catholic doctrine is speaking of the conception of Mary. And it's an immaculate conception of Mary in which she was conceived without sin. So what they say is if Jesus was without sin, then his mother had to be without sin. So her conception has to be supernatural the same way Jesus' conception was. So she was conceived immaculately. And some would say uh, her mother had never had sexual relations either. Um, and so, she, and right, right. But the, yeah, that's right. Then where does it go? How far back do you have to go to get that? Right? Um, and nowhere is it scripture, scriptural. Nowhere is it biblical. And it wasn't even official Catholic teaching until 1854. Right? So Pope Pius IX declared ex cathedra that the most blessed Virgin Mary in the first instance of her conception by a single grace and privilege granted by the Almighty God in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved free from all stain of original sin. From the moment of her conception, she had no original sin and she never sinned. And we can't say that about Mary. Uh, and they also have the, the view of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Um, both the, the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church will uphold this, that Mary was always a virgin. Uh, she is still to this day a virgin, will forever be a virgin. Um, but we, we vehemently disagree with that, by the way. Scripture speaks of Jesus' as half-brothers. Um, and Mary, it seems Mary and Joseph did have other children. Um, and so she, we don't believe she had to be a virgin because they thought she was unstained, she was pure, and so sexual relations of any kind would then defile her. And I think that's a view of sex that's not healthy or helpful, and it's seeped into their, their Christology and their Mariology. So are we saying that the seed was planted down 
Yes. So we're talking about Christ now. Yes. Yes. It was Mary's DNA that he carried. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, now, what was the other half of the DNA? Don't ask me. Was it right? Um, but he carried Mary's DNA. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. It was of her same substance, some of the confessions will say. Uh, born of her substance, the Athanasian's Creed 451. Uh, was, that's right. Yeah. That right. The, the one who died on the cross to save the human race carried her genes, right? That's incredible. I mean, you may say, yeah, he's my son, right? He, she is blessed among women, no doubt, absolutely. But she's not sinless. She's not a co mediatrix, none of that. Jonathan. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. That's right. Very good. Very good. Yes. He had to have the actual succession uh, to, be, to be the son of David and to, to carry that title through. Um, so, um, okay, Mary. Okay, all that stuff. We'll put that aside. So why is the, okay, yes. Oh, sorry. That's right. Exactly. Absolutely. Wonderful point. Yeah. Mary declares him as savior and, and her God. Um, so just one brief point on the sinlessness of Christ, this last point, um, yet without sin, all this happened yet without sin. And, uh, if we went back earlier in our catechisms and the confession, it talked about original sin proceeding by ordinary generation. It was conveyed by ordinary generation. Well, we say that to accept Jesus out of the rest of us, how we all get original sin. Jesus was not born by ordinary generation. It was extraordinary, supernatural generation at that point um, with true humanity, but he was not with sin. Um, so, ah, okay. So why, so the question is, why is this important? Like this, this really is one of those things is like, Virgin, virgin birth. Um, that's really hard to swallow. Really hard to get people on board with. Like the world, this is crazy. It really is. We do believe crazy things as Christians from the world's perspective. And so Christians, especially about 150 years ago, started to get to the point of saying, you know, we don't really need this, right? We could just have Jesus. And Jesus is this great example. Jesus is the one, like, we just need Jesus. He's a man. He's, yeah, he's God somehow. We don't need to figure it out. It doesn't matter. We have Jesus, and that's what's the, what Christianity is all about. We need to follow him, love people like Jesus, and look at him. Like, this virgin birth stuff, like, the inspiration of scripture, like, inerrancy, all that, like, that's not the center of the circle. The center of the circle is Jesus. So this stuff, the virgin birth, the miracles, did he do them? Doesn't matter. Let's, let's just look at Jesus. I hope you realize, like, I don't believe this, right? Um, this, this is the, the liberalism that's, that, that crept into the church 150 years ago, 100 years ago, 50 years ago. It's always being debated in the church because there's always people saying, what if we made it a little bit easier for people to believe? What if we just made it a little bit easier to, and more palatable to the world? This virgin thing, let's just sweep it on the rug. Not a big deal. Now, okay, maybe we don't lead with it in evangelism, but this is critical. You can't reject the virgin birth and have the divine savior, the human and divine savior of Jesus Christ. This is critical for our understanding of Jesus or critical for our understanding of sin, critical for our understanding of the inerrancy and the sufficiency of scripture. Think about it. What if we didn't have this revealed to us in scripture, right? What if we didn't know that Jesus was 
conceived by the Holy, uh, by, by the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Okay, maybe we don't have to have that to be saved. What if it was never revealed to us? But think about all the questions then we would have. Think about how unclear the person of Jesus would be without this single doctrine. We would have so many questions and we'd be led astray so quickly into so many heresies. This is in a wonderful grace of God that he would reveal this to us, to show this to us, to show us who his son is, the person of the eternal son of God. So uh, there's so much more I want to say and ask, but um, John. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Right. Exactly. And if we start saying this doesn't matter, let's just look at Jesus and let's just imitate him. That's all what this is about. What we've done, we've totally lost the gospel. If Christianity is just about being like Jesus, that's not the center of Christianity. The center of Christianity is this man, God became man to die for you because you could not do it. And you lose all of that if we start saying these things don't matter. So this is critical. We must uphold this reality. And as we come today and we, we confess the, the, the creed today, let's say it with gusto. I believe conceived in the womb of the, the Virgin Mary by the whatever. I can't say it right now. <laughs> say it well. It's going to be written for us. I get, I get my Nicene and my Apostles Creed mixed up, right? Let's say it with gusto because this matters because this is about what God has done for us, not about us imitating God. Yes, we do that. We want to do that, but that's not the core of Christianity. We're dead in our sin. That's right. Absolutely. Let's pray, brothers and sisters. Father, we are thankful that Jesus Christ came, taking upon himself a true body and a reasonable soul that we would be redeemed. Bless us as we seek to understand this. May we glorify you all the more. May we praise your name forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.